Welcome to The Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized badass disability rights activist, Judy Human. This month marks the 45th anniversary of the 504 sit-in, which if you aren't familiar with, was a demonstration that took place in 1977 at the HEW office in San Francisco, where demonstrators took over the building for a sit-in that lasted 26 days. Judy was one of the leaders of that sit-in. To honor this 45th anniversary, Judy chats with Dennis Billups and Emily Badix. Dennis was one of the demonstrators at the sit-in in 1977. Emily is the Associate Director of the Paul K. Longmore Institute on Disability at San Francisco State University. This institute has done extensive research and historical preservation on the 504 sit-in through their exhibition called Patient No More. Enjoy this episode all about the 504 sit-in and the Patient No More exhibition. If you want to learn more, please check out the description of this episode for links to the Patient No More online exhibit, as well as other resources relating to the history of the 504 sit-in. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Kylie Miller, and Judy Human. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet this episode's guest. So welcome back to The Human Perspective. Today, we're going to be celebrating the 45th anniversary of the 504 sit-ins with two uh, very interesting guests, Emily Smith-Badix and Dennis Phillips. Now, Dennis was very instrumental in the 504 demonstrations, and he'll tell us more about the role that he played. And Emily came onto the scene many years later. I don't think Emily was born in 1977, were you? I was not. When were you born? I was born in 83. Yeah, so Dennis and I are in the same age range. I'm 74. You're what, Dennis? 69. 69, soon approaching 70. Yeah. All right. So we're going to start getting some background information from both of you. Could each of you please introduce yourselves and explain your connection to the 504 sit-in? Dennis, you want to go first? Uh, My name is Dennis Phillips, San Francisco native, California native, and uh, was introduced to the 504 demonstration by my sisters, friends, and I think the mayor of San Francisco. And they wanted me to go there and speak and just do, you know, what I could. I had no idea really what I was doing. I had heard some stuff about disabilities, uh, people doing a rally. And when I got there, there were people all over the uh, front of the building. They were talking. Kitty Cohn was talking, I think. And then you were talking, Judy. And uh, I just blended in, came in, and then uh, we decided to go in the building, I think, around 1 o'clock in the afternoon or 1.30. It was kind of a cloudy Friday afternoon. I do remember that. And uh, we we walked in, and uh, we just started to uh, be there. And then all of a sudden, we just started to uh, sing and talk about disability rights. And then all of a sudden, we started. I started to do some chanting because uh, people were just walking around and doing stuff. And I says, well, we better get it get this thing started and let them know that, you know, we're here. My role in the 504 was mostly uh, morale and mostly making sure people uh, were enhanced with songs and chants and uh, discussions about uh, themselves and uh, other disabled persons. And I I worked out real well for me. And Dennis, um, I didn't mention you're blind, right? Yes, I am. I'm totally blind. Been blind all my life. And your sister also. 
Yes, she was. She was blind all her life as well. She passed in uh, 2011. Sorry. It's okay. Was she more active than you were in the disability community at that point? Yes, she was. She was interested. She was activated in the CCB California Council. She was in the ACB, American Council for the Blind. She was at the Lighthouse. She, she was doing things for the blind as well. I was more interested in the general disability population, having been at the Recreation Center for the Handicapped, the Lighthouse, and having been at the Lighthouse's camp, the Enchanted Hills. We both were. So, yeah. Thank you, Emily. So, you were not born in the 70s. What got you interested in disability history in general? And then what drew you to the Paul Longmore Center? Well, I am a San Francisco native like Dennis. And so I grew up with a mother who had a disability who was not very involved in disability rights and organizing, uh, but, you know, it was a very social justice oriented family upbringing um, as part of that sort of San Francisco culture. And I was really fortunate to be an undergraduate who was taking this course. It was all about studying bodies and, you know, feminism and critical race studies. And it included like this one day on disability studies. And it was just this like absolute aha moment for me of, you know, just experiences that I'd really witnessed firsthand and, and seen all throughout my life and also some of the ableism that I held and internalized and had to work through and had been part of the problem. And like the two of those together was just like, oh my God, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be part of. And so I was really lucky to be, you know, learning that in the Bay Area where I could kind of immediately start going to events and just got pulled into this amazing community, met Paul Longmore at that point at one of the very first events I ever went to. Um, and then I went on to get a PhD in American studies focused on and disability studies. And I'd come back to the Bay Area and was working at a nonprofit in the final years of my dissertation. And Catherine Kudlick uh, knew she was going to be director of the Institute after Paul passed away. And, you know, she kind of said early on, like, I'm going to need somebody who can work really well with me. and We know each other and uh, you have this nonprofit background. And um, so she brought me on. So I've been doing it ever since. And I was not my history. All of my scholarship was really current. Uh, you know, I, the closest thing to history was like the 1950s on. So I didn't really think of myself as a historian at all. But Kathy, when she had applied to be the director, she had this idea of wanting to do a disability history exhibit for the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act in 2015. And so it really started as an ADA history. And the more we dove in, the more it just didn't have the sort of like materialness that you want in an exhibit for the ADA history. But the one story we kept coming back to was 504. And I think like being an SF native and feeling like nobody knows this story. Why does nobody know this story? Yeah, we were just hung up on it. And finally, this one day we just had this meeting where we're like, that's it. We're just, it's just a 504 history exhibit. That's what we're doing, even though it's for the anniversary of the ADA. And so um, as a result, we just got to dive in real deep, got to meet people, like got to meet Dennis through that and all sorts of folks who were part of that history. And we're like, if I look out that window, we are across the way from where the building was. So that's an exciting moment right now because we're in the public library, which is yeah. the, the building right across. The point that Emily was just making was there was a richness in the 504 story that many people really didn't know. Dennis, you were very prominent in Crip Camp and your involvement with the Impact Campaign. How would you describe people's reactions to learning about 504 decades later? Overwhelming, really. It was overwhelming. It wasn't really like we, you know, made people shout about it. 
but they became aware of it. And the more they became aware of it, every time they see you, they say, hey, we know you. I'm in a, a Oakland uh, neighborhood right now with my sister. And it's like every time I come outside or do anything, it's like, we saw that meditation stuff we did, or we saw you talking about 504 and barriers and stuff like that. So it's much more prevalent now than it was, I think, before the movie. And what the movie did is really sent a shot around the world for people to really understand the kinds of mechanics and things that disabled persons go through. Um, also, I got to meet generation after me, uh, people who are doctors, lawyers, uh, people who are writing and doing stuff in the community. And that was great for me to see 16 weeks with uh, Miss, Miss LaVon there and, and, and meeting all the great people doing that stuff. It was really nice to be in, but it has made a, a real impact, Judy. It really, really has. And you see that the, uh, the deaf community won an award for their movie and stuff. Yeah. And I think it was because we kicked open the door and uh, opened up uh, a lot of people's ideas and minds to what disabilities and and and, and how disability people live, work, and um, manage their life in the community. Yeah, I like the way you kind of encapsulated many of the things that have happened since the 504 demonstrations in 77 and how the film itself, Netflix and Higher Ground and uh, Jim Breck and Nicole Noonan producing this amazing film that I think, you know, Emily, you were speaking about it a little bit before in relationship to 504 overall. People at Sundance and other places would say, how come we didn't know this story? And so I think that's one of the powerful parts both of Crip Camp, and then we'll get into talking more about the Longmore Institute and what it's doing. And I think, you know, Dennis, you shouldn't minimize the role that you played in the building. One of the reasons why the demonstrations were sustainable and successful was because of people like yourself who weren't there for themselves, but were there for the bigger result. Can you tell us a little more about what you did when you were in the building? Well, I'm going to give you a story that happened to me after my wife passed away. And I'm sitting in the house and I get this phone call from Emily. She goes, is this Dennis Phillips? I said, yes, yeah, Dennis Phillips. She goes, oh, we've been trying to reach you. And I'm saying like, what for? <laughs> no, she goes, we want to talk about 504. And I'm saying like, man, that was a long time ago. I don't know if I remember anything. <laughs> so they, they came over to the house, started asking me questions and stuff like that. And a lot of stuff did come back real quickly. And um, then we, we started to do uh, speaking engagements together. And I've spoken at San Francisco State and, and I've spoken uh, Monterey and uh, other places about disability rights and, and the boundaries of disabilities and what the government can and should do to help us in every way possible to have a better life and what we can do for ourselves. So it was really one of those, one of those things that got me back into the flow of things. My nature, as far as the 504 thing goes, is that my mother was a community developer. She had did some work, uh, the first food program um, in the country um, at the Sunnydale Project. So she was a people person. So I was well-rounded with different people all the time. I was just really versed and, and just total people person, people person. So my, my image was to make sure, since I had a louder voice than most people, is to move, do chants, sing, and keep the morale high because it's pretty 
interesting when you know that you could be arrested at any second <laughs> or or anything else could happen because we were messing with the the FBI and after a couple of days we were trying to figure out well you know what are we going to keep doing and I'm saying like let's just keep it up and so the Black Panthers approached me and uh, they had seen me a couple of nights doing stuff with Brad um, Lomax Lomax yes and uh, he says well, I need to call my boys out here they need to be here and making sure that they could help and do some stuff you know for the disabled. And he did, called them up and uh, they came out. And I've also was a member of the uh, Black Panther since 1977. I think it was April 10th or something like that, that I was actually made a member of the uh, Black Panthers. But my thing was to make sure that we held this together because people have to be together. They have to live together and they have to work together as a community so success can be created. And I found out that we were the only ones that were holding this together. Our, our group, we were very lucky. We had connections. We had the mayor on our side. We had Judy on our side. We had, we had, um, we had a lot of people, Mr. Philip Burton and, and uh, a lot of Congress people who were on our side and Evan White, who uh, made sure that we got noticed by the films and the things that he did when we went on the uh, night uh, thing to go to Kyle Farmer's house. And I think that's what really broke the country, Judy, is that thing right there that, that Evan White did is showing us doing the candlelight vigil uh, along with other things and, and uh, uh, making sure that we were uh, seen by the public, understood by the public. The other thing is that we went to um, Jimmy Carter's uh, church at the time and um, we didn't get a chance to see him, but we, we were there anyway. Uh, letting him know that we want to be heard. So those things, um, working with the people, working with um, keeping that together, keeping the morale together, keeping our hearts and minds open with different races and all different people um, and keeping us as one group, one people, one mind, one spirit, one success unit to keep it going and, and, and make it happen. Uh, that's what my job was to be more of a universal uh, person at that time because I had been meditating for 15 or 16 years at that time and I really had an open mind about how to, 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 to move in that direction. Yeah, I think as Dennis was discussing, he was an important part of keeping people in the building by having a good relationship with many people. Meditation and other forms of allowing people to really see the bigger picture because it was difficult to be in the building and it was really important for people to believe that they did make a difference. And I think you were really an important part of allowing people to see how each person individually made a difference. And in the end, I think both you and the rest of us who went to Washington and the, the group remaining in San Francisco, that was really critically important to seeing how we were able to maintain good communication that enabled people in the building to continue to feel like they really mattered. Emily, tell us a little bit about your relationship with Paul. I mean, I had the opportunity to know Paul for a good number of years, and I met him, as I recall, the first time when we were at a post-polio conference uh, in St. Louis. And I remember kind of laughing at Paul and with Paul because you know he was a historian in his own right. And he really, to the best of my recollection, did not do much in disability. And it, that was something that he started doing later. And uh, Paul was like finding religion when he was at the meeting. Tell us what drew you to him. 
Well, I didn't know Paul as well as I would have liked. I, I met him through my friend, Stanley Yarnell, who was his doctor, actually, but also worked with him uh, as part of the World Institute on Disability on the board. And Stan would bring me to all these fundraisers and introduce me to Paul every single time. So I met met him at, at some of those things. And then Kathy Kudlick was also, uh, as I was a young student of hers back many years ago, was was would bring me around and introduce me to Paul. And, you know, I was really struck by this amazing sense of humor he had. And I reached out to him and had a meeting at one point because uh, he had been working for a very long time on his telethons work. And part of my doctoral research was um, around the show Queen for a Day and uh, Extreme Home Makeover. And so I wanted to bond with somebody who else was also watching these really horrible disability <laughs> media, uh, you know, what it's like to just watch hours and hours of footage of just awfulness. But, you know, I, I was still just kind of growing and building my relationship to Paul. And I remember I got back from my honeymoon and hadn't been on email for weeks and then came home to all of these emails of the loss of Paul when he passed away in 2010. And, you know, uh, my relationship was has, has grown more with him after uh, after he passed, just because doing the work that I've been doing, it is like following the breadcrumbs that he left behind, because his reach is just so incredibly tremendous of just how many students passed through San Francisco State who had a disability and got to have that experience of seeing you know, a, a, a professor uh, in a position of leadership with a disability and the, the impact that he had, um, which, you know, I think really relates to what 504 is all about. Like what part of what has been so great about the exhibit and, and getting to do all the speaking engagements that we've done together, like the Monterey thing you mentioned, you know, Dennis got to keynote at CSU Monterey for a graduation for all of the students with disabilities. And, you know, so many students with disabilities don't know about 504 history. And when they do, it's so amazing to be like, I can't decide whether it's just so depressing or so beautiful that students just think the government just always gave them those rights, you know, that that was just always a thing. And to get that history, every single time I'll have, you know, when we share one of these things, we'll have a student who's kind of lingering around and you can tell they're waiting to talk to us afterwards. And they'll say like, I have a 504. I've heard that number my entire life. It was mostly my parents talking to my teachers about it. And nobody really explained to me anything about what that means and where it came from. From. And then, you know, the, they'll say, and I've had students like, you know, literally crying when they're sharing this, that they're like, to know that those rights came because people occupied a building for 26 days, you know, makes me feel so much more empowered to demand it when my teacher's being awful and not giving me those rights is unfortunately is still a reality for many students. So you know, I think both 504 and what Paul did in the long run, it's, it's all about that trying to make sure that next generation of students, uh, you know, feel so much more empowered in their place in a university, their um, their right to have access. I'm just wondering, the uh, book that he wrote on telethons, could you give us like a little summary of that book? And if you think it relates to the 504 work that you're doing? The project, which he spent years and years of his life working on, and it still wasn't finished by the time he passed away. So Catherine Kudlick um, headed up the efforts and had some support from a couple other disability historians to publish it posthumously. And it, it really looks at these uh, the history of the MDA telethons, the, the sort of Labor Day weekend telethons. Um, and I tell you when I teach my students about this, I'm like, you have to remember the time when like there weren't all these choices to watch on TV at every given moment. Like those 
those telethons, when they were on, people were watching them. Everybody really had an idea about the telethons. And um, in the most basic sense, the book argues that those telethons were sort of shaping assumptions about disability is, you know, the, the sort of awful stories of poster children being told to like walk on stage without crutches because the more pathetic they looked, the more money it would raise. Just this very deeply disempowering images of, of disability as tragedy, as pity, as a problem to be solved. But in a much broader sense, it was really about how capitalism continued to have people buy into it because, um, you know, in a capitalist system, there's not really a reward for being a good person. You're not encouraged to do the right thing ever or worry about people. The more money you make, it typically is because you you dehumanize people and you, you don't care about people. And so uh, the telethons kind of offered this annual ritual to perform charity and to say that these major corporations did care about people because they would, you know, fund this poor disabled child image. And, you know, what that did then is it's sort of bolstering capitalism with the image of disability is always being removed and outside of capitalism. A lot of people did get some wheelchairs that they needed and things like that from the NDA telethons, but a lot of the funds were also just to continue the machine of, of fundraising. Um, and then let's see, tying that into before, I mean, it's all about you know, what representations we have access to for disability and which which we don't, you know, I mean, so much of why we wanted to do this exhibit was that we just need better storytelling around disability and uh, to bring to light this history of, you know, disabled people at the center of the story, bringing this creativity and, and how do you make it work to stay that long in a building that's inaccessible? Well, because people were used to being in inaccessible spaces every day of their lives. And so it wasn't that different to sort of make it work. And so just those are the stories I most love to share are these just like creative moments along the way and just helping people understand how this was possible. And, you know, when you think about what it means to tell that story and give, you know, a disabled college kid that story, an image of disability versus the telethon story, which was just you know, so, so pitiful and, you know, that no agency, no central hero around disability. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that that was really the core above all else. We wanted to share this history because it just, it, it celebrated disability in all the right ways that we just don't get enough of. And then to see Crip Camp elevate that in such a bigger way was just such a dream because that story really has so many lessons built into it that helps people understand disability. Tell us a little bit more about Patient No More. It's touring around the country, but for those people who may have it in their communities at some point, if you could give us more information on what it is. So it was a exhibition that launched in 2015, and we, we had two components. We had a, a major one that was at the Ed Roberts campus in Berkeley, which is the sort of hub of disability community. And uh, it was a, a thousand square foot exhibit. Oh, it, was um, huge. <laughs> it was huge. Yeah, it had many different pieces. It had multimedia that featured our interviews of folks like Dennis and Judy. And uh, we did 40 oral histories to try and capture some of the stories that like hadn't been heard from 504 participants to and built those into the exhibit. We tried to make it as accessible as possible in some really creative ways. So one of the things that's followed after is we've done a lot of work with other museums throughout 
the Bay Area and, and beyond to try and teach about how to make exhibits more accessible. And we learned that through the project. And then there's also a separate traveling exhibit. So the original exhibit was in the Ed Roberts campus for a uh, like about a 10-month run. And then it came to the San Francisco Public Library right across from the place where the 504 protest took place. And it was there for an additional um, four or five months. Yeah. And then we have a traveling uh, version. And so that was originally just supposed to be on tour for three years from 2015 to 2018. And fortunately, people just keep booking it. So it's set to travel until 2023. It may go even longer than that if people keep booking it. So it's all around the country. And that's traveling with a nonprofit called Exhibit Envoy. And so if people look up the longmoreinstitute.sfsu.edu, there's a link to learn more about the Patient No More project. And we also have a virtual exhibit. So you can kind of dive in deep. You can see some of those oral history videos that are put together in certain themes, like what was the daily life like? You know, what were people doing from day to day? Or there's one that's all about the media and talks about Evan White, the journalist, and some of his stories. And uh, one that's about that sort of intersectionality, like what groups were working together to make this happen. So that resource has been really important also as a teaching um, material. So we've been doing a lot of work to try and push that out and encourage teachers to use it in their classrooms to teach this history even further. And so that's still just going, basically. We kind of originally saw it as this, you know, that it would launch with the exhibit, but the story um, is just in such high demand. As soon as people learn about it, they want to learn more. And so we just have continued to kind of do a lot of work, um, kind of as the middlemen too, like, you know, people who want to share 504 and want to learn more, and then we'll bring Dennis and connect them and or other speakers who can share about the history in places. We've done a lot of libraries, we've done a few corporations and a lot of universities to try and let 504 speakers be heard, yeah. get more attention. After people see the exhibition, what are some of the comments they make? Well, the access is big. I mean, in addition to the content, like to have it be so accessible in such creative ways is really exciting. You know, just welcoming folks in and saying like, oh, do you want the Braille version or do you want the audio described version? You know, for blind folks that were like, whoa, what? <laughs> like museums are this, you know, world that typically has just been incredibly inaccessible. So, you know, some of the creativity that we were able to bring to that exhibit to really think about access as part of the art form in and of itself uh, and part of the celebration of, of disability and, and not just sort of this like, we will be compliant, but like, we're going to build this all along thinking about, you know, the many diverse needs of disabled people and how people can interact with this exhibit and really like get into that messy work. So that's one of the biggest things is just how much people learn just from experiencing an accessible exhibit and thinking about how the overwhelming majority of ex exhibitions are not accessible. And then another is just, I mean, it's the same thing I said, like that people are like, why didn't I know this story? It's just from a time period where the story circulates so much. So there's that. And then I think the interdependence piece of 504, like really also is something that gives a lot of folks an aha moment of just hearing about how communal it was, that, that no meeting started unless there was a sign language interpreter present, that people like work together to make these things happen, you know, to find a way to have an AC unit or, uh, you know, to help roll people over in their beds at night so they didn't get bed sores or to read written material throughout the day. Like that interdependence thing, I think, is something that I know a lot of the students that have I've helped tour and see the exhibition have 
been like, oh, I've never thought about like how valuable interdependence might be or stepping away from independence. What about you, Dan? What do you think? Well, it's not only a human story, Judy. It's not only a human story, but it's a reference story of how this country from uh, the ground up democracy wise is making a difference. What are some of the future steps that the Paul Longmer Institute is uh, moving towards? Well, our mission is all about, you know, celebrating and showcasing disability experiences and, and using those at the center with disability expertise to just revolutionize social views. So we do that from a number of things from um our film festival Superfest that we run to, you know, public programs and things that really carry on Paul Longmore's legacy through sort of celebrating scholar activists. And then this exhibition was um, was such a perfect fit for, for you know, the, the core of that mission, just because everywhere we got to share it, everybody who learned this history kind of immediately you, you understand disability in a new way. And, and yet it's, it's done with this captivating story that involves the Black Panthers and San Francisco politicians and just pulls people in. So you can, you can teach all those same lessons that we need to be teaching to change people's perceptions about disability without it being pedantic or, you know, a, a training that people are like, ah, you know, so, you know, what's next for us? We just continue to find ways to, to showcase more of those stories. Um, are we diving into another exhibition anytime soon? <laughs> Probably not. But I tell all the museums that we've worked with where we're, we do a lot of consulting and we help them sort of think through. And I'm like, after we finished Patient No More, it kind of felt like after you've been married or you, you learned how to organize a wedding and you don't want to get married again, <laughs> but you really want to share that advice that you got, you know, when the, when the exhibit was here at the public library we got to invite some of the museum professionals nearby to to come and then said like let us give you this behind the scenes tour and we'll tell you some of our thinking around access and and what we did and i think so many of them think about access just as the sort of compliance model and they typically have you know some compliance problems that they're just sort of not doing anything about because they're so worried they're going to get sued that it's really stopping them from thinking like access can be as much a part of your artistic practice as what you know, hanging on the walls or the pieces and sculpture or whatever. Uh, yeah. So, and then, you know, we're always looking for like, well, what are, what are some of the other stories that we still need to know more about and, and showcase. And, um, you know, Paul was taken from us too soon because he did a really incredible job at excavating some of those disability history stories, but we're really focused right now on trying to develop more curriculum in, in California. There's something called the fair education mandate that passed in 2012 mm -hmm. and it made it, um, mandatory to teach disability history in K through 12 curriculum. We've done a lot of work with teachers trying to find out, you know, what's happening, what are they doing? And it's like, mm, we, that's great, but we're so overworked, which is totally, totally true. Um, and so just trying to offer more resources. Yeah. Are you helping them develop a curricula that they could utilize? Yeah, so we've been helping them develop a curriculum. We've also done a lot of trainings to help them think about how do you teach disability history? Because, you know, it's not the same as like LGBT history, where it truly is just very, very invisible. And, you know, was very actively pushed aside. Like disability has been in the textbooks. It is built in. It's just, are they actually like talking about disability in a substantive way when they talk about, you know, reconstruction or when they talk about the progressive era and some of the sort of social welfare projects that were underway. So um, we've been trying to develop curriculum. We already have a curriculum packet around 504 and we kind of have used that to kind of build around, but we're, we're almost done developing a few other curriculum that could help support that because otherwise it's 
it's just going to be FDR and Helen Keller every yeah. year. <laughs> they're yeah. important figures, but there's more to disability there's, history than there's, that. There's a lot more to that. And yeah. I'm working with a wellness group to help with trauma with people with disabilities and non-disabilities. And I think that's going to have a great breakthrough as far as people understanding the kind of steps and the kind of things that they need to go through to make uh, mechanically make things work. So that's the kind of stuff that I'm, I'm working on right now is, is the wellness thing. And it's going to, it should do well. It should do well. And I'm going to try to impact that with um, the Lawmore Institute to connect that as well and see what we can do. It is so interesting when we when we did those interviews, how many people from 504 talked about, we were like, how did you get through? How did you stay? And how many people talked about meditation? So I really feel like that was a clear impact that you had on so many people. <laughs> it's like just teaching folks like stay present each day at a time. You, like, you have to, you have to, because mm-hmm. it was, you know, it was, as Judy will tell you, they they did a lot of stuff to um to, to stop us alarms and things, turning off the showers, doing different little things, sneaky stuff. Um, especially when we left to go to DC, I heard there was a lot of stuff that, that they did as well. But just those kinds of things, uh, those kinds of traumas, that if we can re- revisit them in a wellness program now, now we start to lift the consciousness again of people mm-hmm. and break through the uh, some of the barriers that have been holding still. And they're, they're going away, Judy. They are going away, maybe a little bit slower than we'd like, but... Um, I think we made a hell of a difference and I'm glad that you're still with me to make a continued difference. One of the areas that I think is very important when you're looking at wellness is also looking at this from the lens of discrimination. And for me, that's very important that we look at discrimination in the area of disability, because when we look at it only from the remedy perspective, I don't think it really enables us to get to the core of how many people are feeling because discrimination really tells people they're not equally valued. The way you talk about yourself, Dennis, and how the 504 activities really got you more involved in the movement, you were doing stuff in the area of blindness, but I think 504 was important for you and important for everyone that you touched. I mean, maybe I'm saying this incorrectly, so you should tell me if I'm wrong, but I really feel like it really helped you as a Black man who was experiencing discrimination your whole life based on race and vision into a position where you were able to really help pull things out of people to allow them to recognize that they had rights, uh, that justice was something they should be fighting for. And that's, to me, one of the legacies of 504 and ADA and the movement overall, that we really need to move beyond the issue of access, which is critical. I mean, we can't leave it because we don't have access. Whatever our disability is, we're going to be denied things, but the right to have access. Uh, No, no, you you said it correctly. And I've always in some of my speeches talk about Jim Crow and Willie Lynch to make sure we get that out of the law get that out of politics and make sure it's known what was done, not only with slavery, but with access and some of the laws that still remain there. Now that we have a new justice lady in the Supreme Court, I hope that will kick open the door and knock things over and so we could change some of the stuff to become a better better people and a better America. But you're right. Fighting for justice is still the number one thing. That is the bullet. 
And the more we do it, uh, the more we're joined with other people who are wanting to feel and do the same thing that we do. So uh, that, that's, a, that's a good read on that one. Any final words that either of you want to put out there about the importance of the 45th anniversary of 504? Well, number one, we're, st we're still here. We're still doing it. And I, I would have not believed it if you asked me years ago, would you still be doing this? And um, how an important engine this has become to this country with all of the things we went through in 2020 and 2021, how we're beginning to kind of lead the, the ground cover of justice and how to push it forward. If, if we can just get to some more voices and, and talk about justice for all, to have a democracy and a community for disabled persons that we could uh, not only learn from it, but learn their genius, learn their gifts, learn what they can do best, understand their thoughts, understand their feelings and their heart, their heart's purpose. I think that we, we can get somewhere. But the main thing is, is justice. I agree with you. And having that lady go on the Supreme Court, boy, I'm telling you, I am just so, so happy. I really think that's going to make a difference in the country and on disability. You know, that she has, she's only one one justice, but I, I think she's going to really make a big difference as far as how we look at disability and help change some of those laws. And I really hope that's going to be an effect. And I also want to say she will have a tremendous impact if there are more of her on the court. So register to vote, learn, read, exercise your vote wisely. Well, I want to thank Emily and I deeply want to thank you, Dennis. Thank you all. And maybe we'll get together for the 50th anniversary. Ooh, sounds fun. Sounds fun. You take care. I hope to try to meet you um, in between those times and get a chance to do something. I think we got the engine and I think we got people looking at us now. And I think we're, we're going to move in a, a better direction of community. So thank you for being here and a lifelong friend of almost 40 or 50 years. Thanks. Thank you. Now it's time for Ask Judy, a segment where Judy answers questions sent in by listeners. That was a really great way to acknowledge the 45th anniversary of the 504 sit-in. Yeah, it's very important, I think, to reflect on the importance of 504 in today's terms and enabling people to understand that there really is a history of disability rights. And I think the work that the Paul Longmore Institute is doing is very important because it really has such a breadth of information about the 504 demonstrations. Really extensive information too. It's a wonderful resource if people mm -hmm. are looking to learn more. And I actually have a question for you about the 504 sit-in and your leadership. So this question comes from Rich Prolux. Sorry if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. They asked on Twitter, your leadership during the 504 sit-in is legendary, motivating 100 plus people, many with serious disabilities, to continue the protest for a month. What lessons from that experience might help when trying to motivate others to take action on issues of injustice? There are many different aspects that I want to briefly discuss. One is we talk about the number of people in the building, 100, 150, but the number of people who were involved in organizing the demonstrations and maintaining the interest both in the disability community and the general public throughout the 26 days that the building was occupied. The fact that we were able to, on a regular basis, have demonstrations outside the building. So it was not just an isolated group of people. It was something that really was gaining traction. 
And one of the reasons that was true was because the disability community in the Bay Area worked not only within the disability community, but more broadly. I think that's one of the reasons why the 504 demonstrations were able to be maintained as long as they were, because there really was growing knowledge on the part, not only of disabled people, but non-disabled people about why 504 was important, that it was really the first, one of the first major civil rights pieces of legislation. And that as people learned about it, it was not only gonna be beneficial for those of us with disabilities, but we were also talking about the importance of 504 for people who had yet become disabled. So there were many lessons, including we learned so much about how to work with Congress, how to work on development of regulations. And right after the 504 regulations were signed, the ability to have training programs around the country that allowed thousands of disabled individuals and parents to really learn about what the law was, what the regulations did, what it didn't do. And it really permeated across the United States, which I think is really one of the other reasons why, although it took a long time to get the Americans with Disabilities Act written and passed 1990, many of us believe that there would not be an ADA if we were not as successful as we were with 504. Mm -hmm. The Patient No More exhibition really allows people to learn more in depth about some of the strategies that were being used. But the reality was, uh, it was maintaining relationships involving people. And that's partly what I've been saying. The demonstrations in the building, the rallies on a regular basis external, what was going on in the building, getting food in, getting support, engaging the media. It was a multifaceted approach, which for anything as significant as what we did was the only way that we could make this really vibrant and where the whole community at the end felt victorious, not just the disability community. Right. So many lessons to take away. Uh, thank you very much, Judy. And thank you, Rich, for the question. If you're listening and you have a question you'd like to hear Judy answer, please send it to media at judithhuman.com or DM Judy's accounts on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to The Human Perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. If you want to find out more information about this episode's guest or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit judithhuman.com. You can also find a shortened video version of this interview on Judy's YouTube channel, dropping a week after this podcast is published. Otherwise, be sure to check back every other Wednesday for a new podcast episode. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee.